Hello and welcome to the Lib Dem podcast. And today we have another one of our fantastic groups and associations within the Lib Dems. We have the Lib Dem History Group. And with me to speak on their behalf is Duncan Brack. How are you doing, Duncan? I'm very well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me. You're very, very welcome. Now, for those that don't know, the Lib Dem History Group helps promote and gives people an opportunity to share history and to be a, and look into the history of the party. But actually, instead of me talking about it, uh, Duncan, you, you, uh, the editor for the, the your quarterly uh, uh, publication that you put out. So, why don't you t- tell us briefly what the Lib Dem History Group is about? Certainly. So we were set up when this party was founded in 1988 um, with two main purposes. And the first one was to just remind people where we were coming from. Obviously, the Liberal Democrats formally were a brand new party uh, in March 1988. But we were formed out of a merger between two previous parties that won the Social Democratic Party, which itself had only been in existence for seven years. But the second one, the Liberal Party, had uh, almost 300 years of of history behind it uh, and probably one of the oldest political parties organized political parties in the world in fact and we wanted to give people we wanted to remind people of this history of what liberal politicians had done in the past what they had said what they had stood for the personalities what kind of people they were and remind people where we came from where you know people know what liberal democrats stand for or at least everybody has a vague idea of what liberal democrats stand for but you know that didn't come out of nowhere it came out of a tradition and a set of views that liberal politicians held fairly consistently but also with important differences over the over the centuries so we wanted to remind people of that and give them a, pe- a chance to discuss it and uh, uh, learn further about it and then the second reason why we wanted to form the group was to give a chance for an outlet for people writing about a liberal history and these might be party members or they might be uh, academics um, writing articles about aspects of liberal history that they were finding perhaps more difficult to place Mm -hmm. in the mainstream academic press Um, because unsurprisingly there's always tended to be more of a focus on the two main parties in Britain and that. Um, So we provide, um, uh, you know, we're now on issue 106 of the Journal of Liberal History. We've been publishing quite consistently for the whole uh, uh, for the last 30 years um, almost um, and we have quite a wide range of articles now that have been published and uh, begin- I'm beginning to see reference to to them picked up in other books and other academic writing so it's very pleasing that we've been able to provide that outlet. And I suppose there's all sorts of things we could talk about over the history but I mean thinking about just right now or even maybe just thought since 2010 how how kind of defining has these even the last decade been for for the liberals and the lib and liberal democrats yeah it's been enormously um uh, enormously well kind of enormously exciting i was about to say to to um to live through it's been fairly painful as well uh, i mean i was right in the middle of it um as a i was a special advisor to one of our cabinet ministers in in government for the first two years of the coalition um and i've been on the party's federal policy committee as well obviously this is this is not uh, Liberal Democrat History Group related. Um, mm. We publish a, a regular short booklet, um, which is a good introduction to the history of the party. Um, it's just called Liberal Liberal History, um, just 32 pages. And we update it every couple of years or so. And we always end by saying, the history of the Liberal Democrats can be likened to a roller coaster ride, you know, mm. from the highs of the uh, 2010 election or from the from the, the crashing um, 
painful period after merger in 1988-1990 to the uh, Iraq war and the, the uh, real surge in support we saw then to the coalition government to and then to the sort of crash and the really disappointing election results in the last three elections and that carries on happening and I think um, you know as Paddy Ashdown said in in the phrase we like to use in our promotional literature um, people who weren't, won't learn from their history are condemned to repeat it. We want to make sure that people understand what happened there, what the choices were. Um, for example, did we have a real choice in going into coalition? And the factors that, that um, were important then might be important if we ever have another chance at another coalition. And mm -hmm. um, you know, what happened? Why did we do so badly in 2015? Was it purely a result of going into coalition? Or were the things that Liberal Democrat ministers and the party did during the coalition itself that they could have done differently that we could learn for next year um, because uh, sorry next time uh, because one thing I want to emphasize is that when we're talking about history we mean anything that happened up until about yesterday so mm. uh, you know we don't go a lot well we go a long way back in history but we don't we look at current uh, quite recent events as well for example the last issue of the Journal of Liberal History that came out just in January had an article by John Curtis the, the well-known sophologist analyzing the 2019 election from a Liberal Democrat point of view so we're you're quite up to date in um, in recent happenings as well. And do you see parallels with this period of history with other times within like the last hundred years or three hundred years, as you said, of liberal history, or is it a fairly newish kind of phenomenon for us to be in government and then be so walloped so hard in 2015 and that kind of slow recovery we're now on? Do you see parallels any other time? Yeah, I think I think there are. History, I can't remember who said this, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Um, mm -hmm. there, are, there are always certain sort of common themes for history. I mean, one of them is that I think junior partners and coalition governments usually come off worse. And anything yeah. that's that good that happens tends to get credited to the prime minister and the party of the prime minister. And anything bad that happens tends to get blamed on the junior partner. And I think that was true. I mean, it's obviously true in spades from the 2010-2015 coalition. But there hasn't ever been a coalition quite like it. So again, everything is just a bit different. Uh, I mean, the last... Um, just thinking, I mean, apart from coalitions during periods of national emergency like wars or the uh, economic crash in the 30s, the last coalition the Liberal Party was in was right back post-First World War. And indeed, it was a Liberal Prime Minister. So the situation was slightly different then. We've had, we've had discussions with other groups within the Lib Dems, say people that are more on the, the left wing of the Lib Dems, some people who consider themselves more centrist. Have these sorts of divisions always existed within the Liberals? Yes, basically. And um, this gives me a chance to plug one, uh, uh, another one of our uh, <laughs> range of books and booklets. Um, back in 2007, I think it was, we published uh, quite a large dictionary of liberal thought, which uh, had entries on the different strands of political thinking that had gone together to form the Liberal Democrats or Liberal Democrat ideology and, and different groups within the party, or within you know, historically, and uh, liberal thinkers as well. And sadly, that book's rather out of print now that you can probably find good second-hand copies on, uh, on, <laughs> online somewhere but we extracted some of the entries for it and we publish it as a booklet which is certainly available now uh, called liberalism the ideas that built the liberal democrats so we trace the history of um of sort of approaches to liberalism like social liberalism and economic or classical liberalism and certainly you can trace the roots of those right back into the 19th century um, or the liberal concept of equality you can go right back into the 17th century and the, the kind of the old Whig 
cry of equality before the law, the right of everyone to be treated equal in the legal system. So uh, yeah, absolutely. We're very keen to, um, obviously we don't get involved in those debates from a pushing any point of view particular uh, point, but we want to help people understand where, uh, where liberals have come from in talking about these issues. It has there generally been a more successful wing of the party? So, I mean, uh, when discussions we say like liberal reform, who are more centrist, will say actually, you know, under coalition and the, and the kind of Nick Clegg um, and, you know, Chris Hume and all these sorts of people that were probably more centrist, maybe not so much Chris Hume, but certainly, you know, David Laws and people like that. Has that always been the more successful parliamentary sort of side of our party? That's quite, a, that's a really interesting question. And I think, I think you're right. I think there always has been this tension in the in the sort of the, in the party in the Liberal Party between what you call social liberals or going back to the 19th century, people would probably call them radicals. Because, yeah. But actually, what was meant by radicalism changed quite a lot during the course of the 19th century. So your early 19th century radicals wouldn't have been the kind of big state um, use government intervention in the economy to achieve social aims type of thing we tend to associate with social liberals now because of course the economy was much smaller government intervention in the economy was much much smaller then and actually radicals then tended to want to restrain government spending because most government spending went on the armed forces and on on diplomats uh, and it was seen as really just kind of supporting somebody called it outdoor relief for the aristocracy um, so it was a good sort of radical creed to to, to argue for retrenchment, for cutting down government spending. Now that changed quite radically towards the end of the 19th century, beginning of the 20th century, when you saw the new liberalism uh, come into being, and that informed the great liberal governments of the uh, 1906 to 1916 period, when it became obvious that government actually could do quite a lot to intervene in the economy, to um, to uh, to improve opportunity, to provide the basis of health and education and pensions and so on. Um, so, but I would think coming back to your original question, so I've gone off it quite, quite a while. Um, the problem, I think most liberal members and probably parliamentarians and uh, activists over the centuries and certainly of the 20th century would probably put themselves more on the social liberal sort of more center-left side of the party I'm kind of simplifying enormously here um, but actually the parliamentary leadership has often not been like that and with a few exceptions like perhaps Campbell Bannerman uh, in 1906 um, and Lloyd George um, though Lloyd George tended to be kind of all over the place depending on what the political situation <laughs> was um, the parliamentary leadership has tended to be a slightly more towards the economic liberal right-wing side so I think radicalism has always been or social liberalism has always been a really strong strand in the party but it's never quite had the parliamentary leadership or at least not often and is that it's an interesting one you just mentioned there is that kind of always the difference between membership and leadership is the sense that i mean I, you can see parallels with the labor party now actually they suddenly had a massive membership movement which lurched it to the left however the the, the parliamentary leadership other than corbyn was still very much of more moderate kind of views is that is that does that tend to be the nature with liberalism as well I think it tends to be the nature of all political parties, actually, particularly in the first past the post electoral system, where to win seats, you can't just appeal to the people who agree with you. You have to appeal to people who actually probably don't agree with you, but might be prepared to vote for you because of the situation in your own constituency. So I think you can see the same thing in the Conservative Party. 
um, where actually for certainly in recent years, they've had a membership that's distinctly to the right of their parliamentary uh, parliamentary party, though I think the membership has dragged them over, the parliamentary mm -hmm. party over to the right quite markedly in, in very recent years. Uh, but the Conservative Party is a kind of odd beast. It's it's often not very ideological and they change their positions more than most people. So I think activists are always tend to be a bit more radical, small r radical, in whatever party you have than the parliamentary uh, leadership. So I think that's a com common factor. But, and also, now I'm just following up because I'm getting proper into this now. This is very interesting discussion. Is the fact that you've just mentioned about the Conservative Party. Now, one thing that is generally thought of as Conservative that they are excellent at winning elections. And is that ability for them to pivot and actually say to the membership, you know what, we're going to pivot because it's going to make us win. And you might not get everything you want, but you'll get some of what you want. And, that, and then them following. Is that something that we don't do much of throughout our history? I think the Conservative Party has been better at doing that, and they are, they are one of the world's most effective political parties just in terms of winning elections. Um, and I think, as I said, it's because for most of the history, they've just not been very ideological at all. At least they have one firm principle, which is that the Conservative Party ought to be in power and kind of everything else is secondary. <laughs> and you think recent years have been slightly different from that, and they have been perhaps more ideological and more sort of pro-Brexit um, and more sort of insanely fixed on that in the in the um in the teeth, teeth of all the evidence than you might expect i think actually at the next few weeks and months might be the uh, sort of acid test of this if they're mm. really determined not to ask for an extension or not to accept an extension to the brexit process um before the end of june even though the economy is clearly not even on its knees it's flattened its back at the moment and that would just be crazy um but i think uh the the Liberal Party and Liberal Democrats have been, and probably the Labour Party actually to an extent, have been have been kind of more rooted in in an ideology, a set of principles about what we want to see government do. And we tend to be more attracted to that and we hold on to it, even during the periods when it appears to be electorally not <laughs> so um attractive. So um so perhaps we're we're a bit less flexible with conservatives, but we're a different kind of party. I mean, both of us. <laughs> The Labour Party is different, but we're both more democratic than the Conservative Party. The Conservative Party has a membership that tends to take whatever their leaders do to them, yeah. whereas we don't, and the Labour Party doesn't either, really. And another part that's affecting, obviously, the right now is obviously is about leadership. And at the moment, the Lib Dems don't have an active leader. Going back through Lib Dem history, how important has leadership? And you've mentioned people like Lloyd George, or you want to talk about Gladstone or someone like that. How important has their leadership, their force of persona, affected the, the liberal movement? I think it's been enormously important. Um, it's an interesting question whether it's been more important for us than it has for the other parties. I think possibly it has been. Because I think um, certainly since the kind of extension of the franchise in the mid 19th century, since the second reform act in 1867 opened up the electorate, I mean, it was the great reform act in 1832, but then 1867 was a, quite a big extension. And then 1880, I always forget my years, I think it was 1884 was the next big extension. And then 1918, um, you see more and more people coming to, into the election and kind of um, popular views of politicians become far more important than they were before when the electorate was, was a very small number of sort of fairly educated people. Um, and certainly Gladstone was one of the first big, really populist, or 
popular politicians. He spoke to mass meetings and had thousands of people. And these are the days, you know, before even sound amplification. Uh, I remember Roy Jenkins saying he he talked to someone who's an elderly man whose father had been a shouter for Gladstone. And oh, right. Jenkins <laughs> asked him, what, what, what did you mean by a shouter for Gladstone? They said, well, these monster meetings that Gladstone used to have, people standing a long way away had no chance of hearing him. So they'd have people called shouters who would stand a bit of the way back. And then they'd turn around and say, Mr. Gladstone has just called for another reform of taxation or whatever to the people at. So, um, but he was, you know, he, and I think Palmerston before him managed to uh, attract massive crowds of a way that had never been seen before. And I think, um, uh, that's also true of people like Lloyd George and uh, coming more into the television age, Joe Grimmond was a really one of the first politicians to use television effectively. Um, and I think that the problem with that we've always faced is that unlike Labour and Conservative parties, you can kind of easily identify, or at least historically, you can identify with you know, the working classes and the middle classes. It's never been so intuitively obvious what the Liberal Party stands for. So we've had to, we've always struggled slightly more to explain what it is we're about. And then the, the character of the leader, and particularly in, as we've been a third or a fourth party, the leader is the person who gets you know, almost all the coverage. They've been incredibly important characters to convey the Liberal message. And in terms of the, the Liberal history group, what do you guys choose what to look at? Is that you just get approached by certain academics who are going to be looking into a certain thing or how do you decide what, what, what areas of interest you're actually going to publicise next? Yeah, so we, we, all, we publish the Journal of Liberal History. It's a quarterly journal. I said the one I'm just putting together at the moment is issue 106. So we've been, we've been going for uh, 26 and a half years, I think that means. Um, happily, we're now well enough known that most of our material just comes in. People submit articles to us and we put them through a peer review process and then we're, we're happy to publish them. Um, and we have a, a constant stream. So I probably got enough material in now for keep us through the next two, two issues after this one. Um, Sometimes we commission articles when something is happening, particularly of uh, importance that we'd like to see the historical perspective on. Like we've always asked John Curtis to write analyses of general elections from a Lib Dem point of view. Um, and about every year or so, we do a special themed issue. Like uh, the last one we did was on Gladstone's, Gladstone's first government, 1868 to 74, because it was we were hitting... Um, Oh, what is it, 150 years uh, since then. Uh, and the uh, one we're putting together at the moment is on, which will come out later in the year, is on sort of roots of early 19th century liberalism around the, the Peterloo massacre, the period around Peterloo, which I know the anniversary was actually, or the bicentenary rather, was actually last year. So we're, we're slightly behind the curve there, but it takes us time to get these. So when we'll, we'll try and identify a number of interesting topics we could explore within that overall theme and we'll go out and approach people to, to ask ask them to write articles for us and generally speaking speaking people say yes which is quite nice uh, and then we organize, also organize meetings um, uh, each liberal democrat federal conference and also in london uh, in the summer and the winter and we're hoping to put these online now given that people obviously won't be able to come to them and there we have discussion about well what's in the uh, you know what's what's happening at the moment that uh, might have some historical uh, relevance so in the last uh, yeah it was last autumn conference when the one of the debates uh, around the policy papers was on health policy we organized a meeting on the liberal roots and the liberal uh, the way that the um, 
the place, the role that liberals had played in the foundation of the NHS and the kind of early moves towards a health service. And actually, it was a really well attended meeting and really interesting uh, speakers, which we hadn't really explored that kind of topic before. So you can often find kind of historical relevance in, in many things that are happening nowadays. We try and make that link uh, and encourage people to come to the meeting. Now, this is obviously a question more of your personal view rather than I don't want it to be the official Lib Dem history group's uh, policy. But is who has been your favourite leader? Who has been your, or your favourite liberal uh, in history? Oh, gosh, that's a really good question. So my favourite leader, I think, is probably Paddy Ashdown. Um, and I must admit, personally, I'm affected by, you know, I work quite closely with him. I was the party's first policy director from uh, 88 to 94. So, and he was chair of the policy committee. So I had quite a lot to do with him. And I thought he was, a, you know, he faced a really tough uphill uh, struggle to, to save the party from collapse entirely in 88, 89, uh, 19. I saw what he did then. And then he had the imagination to try and pursue what became known as the project, the uh, the deal with, uh, or the arrangement with, uh, with the Labour Party under Tony Blair to try and um, undermine the Conservative government and to make sure that the 97 election wasn't another Conservative victory. If it had been, it would be in the fifth in a row. And to try and lay the foundations for um, a uh, yeah, re reform of thoroughgoing reform of the British constitution. And he succeeded partially, you know, things like devolution to Scotland and Wales, freedom of information legislation, reform the House of Lords. I think the Labour government wouldn't have done all of those things by itself, but he never got PR for Westminster, which was the, the big prize, of course. But at least, you know, he tried, he had a plan uh, and he tried to put it into, um, into, into practice. And he was, I think, I found him a, a very attractive individual as well, very um, personable, very charismatic and very easy to get on with really mm -hmm. um going further back in history i must admit uh i have a lot of admiration for lloyd george um even though he was very chameleon-like in his mm -hmm. political views <laughs> he could sort of go off he was very the opportunist opportunist really um but he injected a, a very healthy dose of radicalism into the liberal party during the new liberal period when we were expanding the role of the state uh, in those governments before the first World war and then again when he became leader in um 1926 and he fought the uh before the Liberal Party fought the 1929 election on basically a Keynesian program before anybody really knew what Keynesian was. And uh, the historian Skidelsky, Robert Skidelsky, described the Liberal Manifesto of that year as probably the most intellectually distinguished manifesto ever put before the British people. And as someone who's had quite a role to play in writing all of the Liberal Democrat manifestos, <laughs> um, I'm deeply in admiration of that. Very good, very good. Now, you've, you've talked a little bit about, obviously, about Paddy and about those negotiations he had uh, with Tony Blair at the time and I'm, I'm always of the firm believer that like I say history helps us we can learn from history to shape our future and our present and so what what can we take now from what Paddy did with Tony Blair do you think Keir Starmer is someone we can work with do you think the pennies dropping for Labour that actually particularly without Scotland they're going to need maybe some sort of electoral reform to get get rid of the Tories or actually because you know the idea that I know coronavirus may shake things up a little bit than what it was a few months ago, but still they're looking at potentially nine years before they're back in government. And I'm going to try and work out now, it's nearly 20 years then since the last one election. Um, so it, do you think that's a possibility that we're seeing a, a slight realignment with Labour in a similar sort of way as what Ashdown and uh, Blair did? 
That's a really interesting question. In fact, I, I kind of explored this a bit with Mark Pack um, just a mm. couple of days ago in his uh, Never Mind the Bar Charts um, podcast. And we looked at um, something I've written about a bit, which is the Ashdown Blair project. Um, and uh, I think uh, the way in which Ashdown tried to develop cooperation with the Labour Party, I think has loads of lessons for us to learn now. They were all a bit irrelevant when Corbyn was leader of the Labour Party because, yeah, they, just the Labour leadership was not attractive to us and not interested in us either. Mm. Um, but I think Starmer, I mean, Starmer's a bit of an unknown quantity, isn't he? But I think he, um, if he is open to cooperation, I think the kind of things that Ashdown and Blair explored, which were never seat pacts it was not standing down in favor of each other that was that was i mean it was discussed occasionally but it was never really on the agenda and that's non-aggression wasn't it thing. yeah yeah it was exactly it was non-aggression it was it was focusing our fire on the conservative government is not attacking each other um occasionally collaborating in parliament over things like prime minister's questions it was um promoting policy debate um on the same kind of issues and trying to I very occasionally reach joint positions like the mm. Cook McLennan talks, so led by Robin Cook for Labour and Bob McLennan for us on constitutional reform, which uh, led to some things I was just talking about a, a few minutes ago on the, the Labour government's constitutional reform agenda. Um, and during the 97 election, it was not fighting, not targeting each other's target seats, um, and also. Um, encouraging kind of outsiders to identify places where tactical voting would have an effect. For example, the Daily Mirror published a list of 22 seats where if Labour voters voted Liberal Democrat, the Conservatives would lose. And in the event, 20 of them went Liberal Democrat. Uh, and I think uh, the 97 election saw, saw an unusual degree of tactical voting. And it was partly because of all that, the sort of covert cooperation that was going on. So I think if Starmer and the Labour Party are open to that, and if they are, you know, if the Labour Party genuinely shifts away from some of its current sort of horrible positions and its problems mm. with anti-Semitism and its uh, stuff like that, and if they, if they become genuinely open to particularly electoral reform, then I think we have the possibility of uh, repeating some of those kind of uh, the things that Ashdown did. It's very interesting because the polling just came out today regarding Keir Starmer, asked whether they people thought he was in favour of him or not in favour of him, and the don't knows came out top. He seems oh, to have yeah. kind yeah. of glide. I mean, new leaders do always a little bit anyway, but it's certainly he hasn't got any baggage, it seems, with people are waiting to make that impression, which again, if we play this right in terms of the Lib Dems, gives us an opportunity to maybe get some influence and work with him and hopefully, you know, have a better future. Yeah, I think that's right. And he is he is starting from a different point than starting point from Tony Blair. I mean, when Blair took over, the Conservative government was already in deep trouble. It was um, Black Black Wednesday. I forget which day of the week it was. No, it was Black Wednesday, wasn't it? When the, the pound crashed out yeah. of the exchange rate mechanism and the, and the Labour Party under his predecessor, John Smith, are getting steadily more and more popular. They still have that huge block of seats in Scotland. As you said, they don't have that mm -hmm. at all anymore. So I think um, Starmer and his his colleagues, if they're intelligent, they ought to realise that actually the need for cooperation is much, much greater on their yeah. part. Well, all I can say, because we've only got a few minutes left, but thank you so much for coming on. I think everyone from our listeners and our viewers on, on YouTube will really enjoy that. Uh, I will just uh, give you a little bit of promotion as well. Do go check out their publications. Also, you guys are on Twitter at, at LibHistoryToday is, uh, is where you can find them. You also have a Facebook page, so please do check them out. You do fantastic work. Um, if we ever get our conferences back, which we will do at some point, we go to some of the fringe events. I've been some in the past. They're always very, very interesting. I can't remember if there was booze, but that, it's not the most important <laughs> thing when it comes to conference. 
Um, but no, it's no, only but drink afterwards, I'm afraid. Yeah. <laughs> but no, just uh, thank you so much, Duncan. We really appreciate you coming on. Uh, and uh, like I say, do go check out. And I've, I mentioned before we started recording that I actually got the Liberal History Audiobook, which is available in Audible, which is a fan- it's actually not the longest book in the world, but it's actually a, it's a fantastic little brief synopsis of kind of history of the Liberals. So uh, yeah, I'd encourage everyone to go check that out. That's great. Thanks very much. It's really good to talk to you. Make sure you don't miss a single episode of the Lib Dem podcast. You can find us on your podcast providers. They will come into your feed if you click subscribe. That's always worth doing. But also go across to our new YouTube channel. We'll be doing videos like this and we will be back with another episode very soon. Mm